Welcome to the CoreCast, where we interview Jewish leaders and discuss issues relevant to the Jewish community in Canada and around the world. I'm your host, Richard Rabkin. Welcome, CoreCast listeners. I have the pleasure of having with me today Rabbi Don Pacht. Rabbi Pacht is the head of school of Vancouver Hebrew Academy in Vancouver, Canada. Rabbi Pacht, thank you for coming to the CoreCast. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Great. So let's talk a little bit about you before we get into your work at the school. Maybe you can share with the listeners where you're from, where you were born, some of the schooling, and what led you to uh, head of school in Vancouver. Sure. I uh, was born and grew up in Queens, New York. Uh, went to um, Tor Yisrael and Tzvaris Moshe Elementary School in Yeshiva Chavetz Chaim for high school. And then after Azman and Eretz Yisrael, I settled in for my base medrash uh, and most of my kolal years in the Yeshiva Chavetz Chaim in Rochester, New York. And um, there, while I was in yeshiva, I also uh, earned myself a, uh, a master's degree in education leadership, education administration. Um, and while I was serving on the Hanhala of the yeshiva, a, an administrative role opened up on the general studies, the whole side of the high school program. And the Rosh Yeshiva thought it would be um, a nice idea to move away from the typical model of the retired perhaps non-from Jewish uh, public school administrator as the yeshiva uh, administrator and someone who really understood and had full investment in the vision of the yeshiva um, and full understanding of the vision of the yeshiva. And, and I did that for a few years and it was actually very enjoyable and I think moved in the right direction as, uh, as evidenced by the continuation of that in the yeshiva in Rochester. Um, but I was looking for perhaps another opportunity and I contacted Tor the National Society for Hebrew Day Schools, and I was told of a position in a school very far away in another country. And um, actually, I thought it was Winnipeg. <laughs> but uh, as it turned out, it was Vancouver. Um, I had recently learned where Vancouver was on the map because two very close chaverim of mine had, had moved there to start a Chavetz Chaim High School yeshiva. So my wife and I went out to visit for a uh, for a Shabbos, and we quickly fell in love with the people in Vancouver and sort of the, the Edelkite of the community. Uh, some wonderful, wonderful people and the momentum that we had in the community at that time. They were building sort of Torah, and they wanted to bring the elementary school, the Vancouver Hebrew Academy, to the next level. And I have been there ever since. So when was that approximately? 2004. So this is my 16th school year in Vancouver. Wow, amazing. Now, talk to us a little bit about when you moved, that process of taking that New York boy to the thriving metropolis of Vancouver, Canada. What was that like? So I, had I moved directly from New York, it probably would have been a much more significant hurdle. Um, but I had spent about 12 years in Rochester in between. So despite being in the same state, uh, Rochester is not really the, the New York that you think of. Um, I think I, my parents' house is within a stone's throw of about five kosher pizza stores. And Rochester at the time had very little in terms of, of infrastructure outside of the yeshiva uh, itself. So moving to Vancouver, there was a bakery and a restaurant and a deli. So it was it was enough for us. We didn't really have ambitions for much more necessarily. And Baruch Hashem, it, it took a little bit of time. It, it is very much another country, um, a, a 
friend of mine jokes about Canada and the United States are two nations divided by a common language. It, it seems like it should be just the same because it's right next door, but there's a lot of cultural differences that took us a little time. So apart from the cultural differences in terms of Canadian-American, but you did still, I guess, go from the cocoon of the Rochester Yeshiva community, even though it was small, to now being um, in a more diverse, less religious community. So how did you navigate that? So I had a little bit of training with that, even in Rochester. One of the other things that I do, I'm also a Moel, and I was a Moel for five years in Rochester as well. And that took me into other areas of the community outside of that cocoon. Um, and perhaps my parents just did a good job raising me. I had the ability to kind of navigate conversations and, and strong set of interpersonal skills. And those served me well and my wife as well as we navigated our way through Vancouver. It is, it is a very unique community in that there are no clear boundaries between the denominations of Yiddishkeit. And we find families at each of the schools across the Jewish spectrum. Okay. So then take us through maybe the first year or two or whatever, that first period of time where you kind of have to assess the situation. You presumably need to make some changes. Some things are working well. Some things could be working better. So how do you assess that? And what would you say were those first important changes that you made that you would like to share? Well, fortunately, everyone is always happy to let you know what they think needs to be changed. So I spent a few months taking in all of that information. Um, but more seriously, I sat down in the school, started visiting the classrooms, listened to the parents, listened to the teachers, um, and started to look at kind of what the, the smallest, most meaningful and impactful changes would be. One of, I think, probably the most significant change that I made, and it only happened in the second year that I was in the school, I spent six months researching CREA programs, emerging reader programs for Hebrew language, um, because we were, what, what I had seen is that the older students in the school were not necessarily as fluent as you would want them to be going into grades three, four, five, and so on. Um, so I sat down with my K-1 teacher and looked at her program, assessed what was going on, and said, would you consider looking at something else? And we found something that was a, a more concise program, more efficient program, more effective program. Same teacher, same classroom, new program, an entire level of, uh, of success. Um, so that was probably the first big change that I made. Um, the, from there, do you want me to go on? Please do. Okay. Please do. <laughs> From there, it was a, a matter of, of raising the profile of the Hebrew Academy. The, the Hebrew Academy is, is a, a small school by comparison to the larger community school. We, we've hovered in the neighborhood of about 100 to 120 students to their 400 to 450 students. And most of the families in town have their first degree connection to the non-religious school, not the, not the Vancouver Hebrew Academy. So part of my job was to raise our profile to help people understand that a, we might be the right school for their family if they haven't considered it, and B, even if we're not, we are a, a vital part of the Jewish infrastructure of the community, and there's a need to support our school on multiple levels, regardless of whether or not your children or grandchildren attend this school. How do you make that case? I think that's an important point that you made, and how do you, how do you actually make that case? Unsuccessfully. No, I'm just, <laughs> um, it, it, it really is... It's a matter of communicating the the passion 
that I have and that others should have. Once, once people really do understand what orthodoxy does for the community, um, then having an orthodox elementary school follows quickly on, on its heels. Um, so it's really kind of helping them to understand that you may not be orthodox, but orthodoxy is the, the center of your Jewish bullseye. And all of our community is tethered to the center, and we've got to be there and we've got to be strong. And then when, once they, they use a few examples and, and talk them through their life experiences and what it would be like if they didn't have orthodoxy at the center. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I mean, I know that when we had a visitor uh, to Toronto from Israel, it was actually an Israeli soldier who traveled around North American cities talking about uh, Israel and Israeli soldiers and his organization, which helped um, Israeli soldiers who had been injured. He made an interesting observation. He said that he noticed the strength of a Jewish community and their support for Israel based on how many kosher restaurants were there were. Right. Interesting so, formula. Right. Yeah. It, it's strange. Right. Because you think about how, how, why is that? Well, I guess people who are more committed to observance, um, you know, obviously seek out kosher restaurants. And therefore, that bullseye, like you said, um, is better formulated so that those communities have people who are, um, you know, also bigger advocates of Israel. He, he referenced somewhere in, I don't know, the San Francisco area where there were basically a lot of Jewish people, but no kosher restaurants. And unfortunately, that was the place, too, where he had the most difficulty um, even getting traction from the Jewish community in terms of support for Israel. So I guess that's similar to what you're saying. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. It's the same, same formula, same idea. Right. Um, okay, so after you make a few changes, then then kind of take us through, I mean, you don't have to go year by year, but take us perhaps through some of... Uh, either major accomplishments or, or just changes in the school? So um, about, say, a little over 10 years ago, I think it was 2008, 2009, is when we took our, our largest single step in, in terms of, of an organization. We work with Yeshiva University to do some strategic planning. It, the Hebrew Academy had always been the school that needed to be there, so it was kind of the little train that could. My, my board chair at the time used to use that that analogy. It was a little school that could. You know, that we, we have whatever funds are available. We have the students that come. We have the teachers that come. But there, was no, there wasn't a lot of direction and vision. And I had been with the school at that point for about three or four years and probably pushed things to the level that you can without without really developing a fuller vision. And working with Yeshiva University and the community partners, that's exactly what we did. We created a five-year plan. We, we showed them what we wanted to do in terms of teacher development, in terms of, of being able to consistently attract quality uh, educators to market the school properly. And that was one very big step forward for the Hebrew Academy. And I would say that we've been changing and growing in small ways ever since, um, but that was sort of the biggest first step, and we just recently achieved what I consider, like, perhaps even going back to that plan in 2008, one of the things that we recognized, we need to have a, a more fitting space for the school. We had been operating in a small public school annex building with a number of portables, trailers on site. And uh, this past summer, we got rid of those portables, and we started construction on a, a new 6,000-foot uh, modular building, uh, which 
has added now uh, about 3,500 additional square feet, but more importantly is that it's all tailor-made, useful, um, perfectly uh, designed space for the program that we want to create, including full-day daycare, which is a need across Canada, in particular in, in Vancouver's Lower Mainland, where families have to have two incomes uh, to, to live in that area, and they will need child care for younger children. So when they're school age, great, drop them off at eight in the morning, pick them up at four in the afternoon, but we'd only have the capacity to run a four-hour preschool for children three and four years of age. Now, uh, we're going to be moving in in just a few days from now, and we'll be running a full-day uh, daycare, which will mirror the schedule of the elementary school. I want to say that I had the privilege of getting a tour of that facility just uh, a couple months ago, and it really is beautiful, and I think that uh, kudos to you for really pulling that off. Thank you. A lot of people, a lot of hard work, a lot of elbow grease, strong support from the local community as well. So what would you say are some challenges now? This, you know, may be uncomfortable, but, you know, obviously we're doing it for the sake of, um, you know, benefiting the Jewish public. So what, what are some challenges that you face in particular uh, at your school or, or maybe some general challenges that a head of school might, might face and how do you navigate those? So I, I'm going to list it here amongst the challenges because I really want to list it. But in a certain sense, it's, it's actually as much a strength that it, as it is a challenge and one of our greatest strengths. The, the size of Vancouver's community allows for one Torah elementary school, uh, which means we have under one roof, we have the entire array of Toronto's day schools under one roof. So our Chabad families, our Litvisha families, our Datizioni families, our, this is perhaps a Vancouver term, non-observant Orthodox families, all attend and beyond, all attend the same elementary school. And we all recognize that no single one of our demographics is going to be able to run a school just for our children and that we have to work together. That, to me, is the greatest strength of the school and of the community, that ability to cross those natural divides and, and just level the field and say, we're going to do this together, even though it doesn't always work well, we're going to make it work. And it has worked well. It is, however, a challenge. You know, any school is going to have that, that array. You're going to have that tug of war. The parents want a little bit stronger focus on Ivrit over what might otherwise be taught during that time, Navi, extra Chumash, whatever it might be. Uh, the families that want Gemara to start a year earlier versus a year later. And in our school, that tug of war is just a little bit more intense, a little bit stronger. Baruch Hashem, with a little bit of, of, uh, of craftsmanship, we've been able to manage that and help parents to understand the advantage of all being under one roof and the fact that the, the challenges that we have to face as a result are very much worthwhile. Okay, so I'm going to keep pushing you a little bit on challenges because that certainly is a challenge that you face, I imagine. What are some others? Um, I, I would say that... Um, being able to attract and keep quality educators is, is one of the more significant challenges for a community like Vancouver. I suspect it's a challenge in every community, but we have the, uh, the additional concern around distance. For a lot of, uh, most Mahanchem are coming from either the eastern United States, eastern Canada. Um, there are very, there, there is no 
uh, yeshiva of higher learning that's producing mechanchem and mechanchos in Vancouver uh, or the Pacific Northwestern United States. So it's it, the closest community to draw from would say be Los Angeles. Um, and it is a, it, it's quite a distance and quite a shift from the, you might know better than I how many restaurants there are in Los Angeles to the three restaurants that there are in Vancouver and the infrastructure for, for Jewish life. So we're asking people to move further away from their families to a, in many instances, another country um, and to a community where housing is, is well beyond their reach. Um, we have Baruch Hashem over the years developed a, a group of unbelievable mechanchim, which is, we, we happen to have some top, top teachers, um, but if they should leave, uh, their children reach a certain age, whatever the drivers might be, it, it's become more and more challenging for day schools outside of the major Torah centers in general. And the further you are from those centers and the smaller your communities and the more expensive those communities, the more difficult it's become. So we are actually looking strategically at ways to, to crack that nut. How can we ensure that we're able to bring out quality educators, quality rabbanim, leaders, moros, um, considering all of the challenges. Have you come up with any solutions? Nope. I'm like a consultant. I can tell you what the problems are. I don't tell you how to solve them. Okay, so then maybe let's flip this question a little bit on its head. What would you say a school such as yours could perhaps teach schools in Vancouver um, to do better. I, I know that you're not teaching, but what, what, you know, we in, in a place like Toronto, so as you correctly mentioned, we kind of struggle with our own challenges. Uh, you know, we have lots of schools, but of course there's challenges in every situation. So what do you think in an ideal world, um, a place like Toronto could learn from or adapt, uh, that, that you might be doing? Because we are the only school, we, we feel a particular sense of achrayas, uh, responsibility to each of the children that come our way. If we, if we have to turn a child away, they have no other option for Torah education at that grade level. Um, it doesn't always work to our advantage as an organization, and it often involves a level of, of expense, of resource and manpower and energy and that is disproportionate. But at the end of the day, we're the only option. We're the first and last line of defense, so to speak. Um, this is not a judgment, but an observation that in larger communities, there is the luxury of schools to be a little bit more selective. And I've, I hear, I've seen this in schools that I visited, uh, schools that I've been part of um, consulting and other roles, is that there, there is a point at which the school can say, we, we don't accommodate, we cannot accommodate, we will, will not accommodate. And that's probably the right move most of the time. But the, I, I think that perhaps what we have learned through our process is that even if we're not the right school for the child, we have a responsibility to help that family through to the next level, the next stage, and help them find a lack of a better term, a soft landing somewhere else. Uh, for some families, it means relocating to a community that has the kind of, of infrastructure that can accommodate their family's needs. But all too often, Jewish schools find themselves in, 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 a, um, in an unfortunate relationship with parents where there's 
finger pointing, blame games. The parents feel that the, the schools aren't trying to help their child. The school feels that the parents are trying to offload responsibility, whatever it may be. The successful chino happens when everyone feels that they're working together. Now that, that at the end of the day, if you're in the classroom with a child, it can be very frustrating. At the end of the day, if you have a child whose needs are not being met by the school, it can be very frustrating. I, I have met a lot of teachers in my day. I've never met one that didn't care about the children. I, every so often you get a teacher who's a few years past their, their best by date, right? Okay, perhaps it's time for retirement or what have you, but they, they came into this because they wanted to help children. You know, one of my one of my administrators likes to joke. He's like, "Oh, not me. I'm in Jewish education for the money," but it's a joke. Like nobody goes into Jewish education for the money. They're there because they want to help children. I've never met a parent who didn't genuinely want the best for their child. What both people involved need to understand is what is best for the child, and typically that means working together, putting aside those frustrations, looking past what could easily be seen as, as a frustration and saying, but this is someone who really wants to help my child. And the teacher understanding that this is this parent, all they want is what's best for the child. Let me help him or her find that path. Right. I've kind of heard this before that the, the larger the community is, the more selective the schools are. And while the students themselves may, may, you know, perhaps academically excel a little bit more, but, you know, the, the students from the small towns, out of town, as they say, their meetos are better or they're, they're more well-rounded or what have you. Um, is that something that you see resonates with you? Um, I, I would be reluctant to make such a broad blanket statement, but I do see that in smaller communities, you do tend to find children who, who are, are, because of their broader social experience, they are more easily able to navigate a broader social experience. Right. I just, I do want to say on the, the brief tour that I was able to take with you uh, at your school, I was really blown away by the respect that the students had for the teachers, the respect the students had for um, for the head of school. It seemed to me, um, you know, I don't tour lots of schools all the time, but it seemed to me that there was something just just pure and fresh and, and, and really well, beautiful about that. They were in awe of you because you took credit for kosher marshmallows. Right, I saw. right. Okay, that makes sense then. Okay, but, but I thank you very much. It's something that we do work very hard on. It's no school is perfect, but every school is working on Midos as well as academics. Perhaps part of it is the community. At Vancouver happens to be a community where despite the fact that there's fewer and fewer families who are perhaps themselves Shomrei Torah and Mitzvos, but there's a great deal of respect for Torah and Mitzvos. And the children see that in the, the, the company that their parents keep, as well as the messaging that they get from the school. So that's a good segue. Can we talk about Vancouver maybe a little bit for a moment, the, the community itself? And can you help paint a picture, um, some of the advantages, you know, some of the challenges perhaps as well? But, but what is the um, what does the Vancouver Jewish community look like? And how does that kind of also, I guess, at the end of the day, impact your school? Um, so I, that's a very big question. I would say that, very broad stroke, Vancouver is a, is a bit of a throwback 
in terms of the, the, the evolution of its Jewish community. And you've found, we have found that in general between the U.S. and Canada and the East Coast and the West Coast. There's sort of this, this uh, two axes, and you see that um, the changes that have come to Eastern communities are a little slower moving their way to the Western communities. And Vancouver, is, as Rabbi Rosenblatt, who's the rub of the largest Orthodox shul in Vancouver, likes to call, we're the last Na'ila. Right. If you if you follow the the, the clock, Vancouver's the last Na'ila. So the changes they tend to get to Vancouver latest. As a result, what you find is the kind of community that you might have found in Eastern Canada in the 1950s and 60s, where there are a lot of very traditional Jews who value traditional Torah Judaism, although they themselves don't practice it necessarily. Um, there there are. A number of restaurants that are supported because people understand the need for the kosher restaurants for the the Torah observing community. But when it comes down to it, 30,000 Jews demographically, based on survey data, 50% of those Jews are completely unconnected to any organization, including Federation, um, who have started branching out in the last few years strategically to to bring them in. And part of it is just ge geography in and of itself, is that in order to afford a home, they have to move further and further from the center of Vancouver, which is where the, Torah, the, the Jewish community has, has uh, traditionally been centered. Um, but there's a great deal of respect for Judaism. There's a high degree of, of Zionism. All of the synagogues, um, I, not the current uh, leader of the Reform Temple, but just prior to is one of the most uh, one of the strongest advocates for Israel and Zionism, which is is very atypical in a Reformed congregation because they, they've kind of moved away from Israel as the homeland. But regardless of their affiliation, the, the vast majority of the Jews in Vancouver are very strongly Zionistic, very strongly supportive of Israel. I think our Federation and our, our JNF, uh, the, the numbers that they see uh, reflects that. Right? There's, there, there are strong ties to traditional Judaism, but the practice is uh, coming along slowly. So that's the, I guess, macro picture. And now if we can drill down a little bit to the, the observant community, the from community, and then how that affects either your school, high schools, um, or the like. Okay, so the one of the, I will call it an advantage of this throwback, is that not you have many Jews who are maybe not practicing Orthodox, but they're affiliated Orthodox. And as a result, it has allowed us to broaden our imprint across the community. There are more people who are aware of what the Orthodox observant families are doing because they are connected to, uh, for example, Sharit uh, Tzedek, largest Orthodox synagogue in Western Canada, has about 450 to 500 member families. I, I forget the exact number and growing. Um, but there are probably about 75 Sh Shomer Shabbat families that, that belong to the synagogue. But it gives us an audience to very traditional, closely aligned families. And that's where, for me, that's the potential growth market for our school. Right? The rabbi's kids, yes, they're going to send the Torah observant families. They're going to send their kids to the Hebrew Academy. We want the more traditional families who we would never necessarily get our message out in front of, if not for the fact that they're already coming to the Orthodox synagogue. Um, the, there's a, a beautiful Sephardic congregation. Chabad is very active in multiple areas throughout the community. Uh, 
Hebrew Academy through the years has actually spun off both a boys yeshiva high school. There's a Chavetz Chaim yeshiva high school uh, that came in and took the older boys and, and created a program and operated uh, a beautiful program for um, 16 years. And unfortunately, just this summer, we're forced to, to relocate their base measures program because the, the numbers just were not there to maintain a standalone organization. Um, but we do still have a strong girls high school. It's small. I think we have 17 girls in the high school. And that as well started with the uh, the Hebrew Academy keeping girls for grade eight, grade nine, and then eventually um, spinning it off to its own very successful organization, Shell Havet High School for Girls. I highly recommend it. My, my oldest uh, graduated from there and uh, my younger daughter is now in grade 10. Beautiful. Um, so, I mean, I think that we, we have a, a picture of Vancouver being in very good hands. I don't know if you have anything else to share with us before we go. I, I mean, maybe just a final question about what oftentimes I uh, hear people talking about, which is cost of living in Toronto, which is a challenge um, for us. You know, so housing prices are, are high. Um, you know, obviously tuition is high. I what I know, Vancouver, uh, it's even worse, at least when it comes to housing prices. Is there is, is that indeed the case? And with tuition, specifically with respect to your school, are you able to balance that? And is that a factor either driving people away from the city or perhaps um, is there opportunity for growth there? So it, it, it's a very good question. There, there's been a little bit of an analysis on that just as we kind of plan strategically for the future. Um, our tuition rates are typically lower. We do receive a, a degree of provincial funding for elementary and high school. Um, it's certainly not going to cover all of the costs. If the school happens to own their building, that's a huge advantage, but the Hebrew Academy does not. We are we are still renting, so that's a significant cost. It's, it's not quite the, the market rent for residential, but it's it's up there. Um, it realistically, it's not it's, it's not a um, a strategic move to leave Toronto because it'll be cheaper in Vancouver. It won't be. Just that the housing piece alone is what tips the scales. Having said that, there are other things that are going to be less expensive. Tuition is one of them. Perhaps healthcare. I don't know exactly how BC and and, and Ontario would relate. Um, Families that have moved from New York have commented that by the time you're done with all of the tuitions and car insurance and health insurance, it's it's not that much more expensive to live in Vancouver. But it, it's not going to have the kind of an attraction where uh, all of, I call them the satellite communities that, that New York has given birth to. Like at first it was Teaneck, then it was Passaic, now it's just further into, into Pennsylvania, New Jersey, or Connecticut. It's all within a couple hours drive of New York City, and it, it all came to be because it was cheaper than living where you grew up, like where your parents still live. Um, there are no neighborhoods like that in Vancouver. You, you have to drive a nice long way to get into that first-time buyer's market. Um, the, the strategy is really one of Kiruv, of helping people to appreciate and understand why it's important to embrace uh, the Torah organizations and, and affiliate, attend, as the case may be, what's most appropriate for the family. Um, build from within. I mean, we do need to attract from, from without just to build up our numbers to more of a, perhaps Jewish professionals, as it were, um, or those who can afford to live in Vancouver, leaving communities, not necessarily in Canada, but European communities that are, that are struggling. It might be cheaper than certain parts of, of Paris, for example. 
but I think a lot of the growth is going to have to come from within. Well, Vancouver has an advantage on, on many communities in the world in that it is located in Vancouver, which is one of the most beautiful cities in the world. And um, you're definitely fortunate to, to live there. And I am fortunate, and all of our listeners are fortunate, that you joined us here on the Corecast. Rabbi Don Pacht, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Pleasure. Well, that's our show for today. I know it's so hard to say goodbye. So if you enjoyed the Corecast, you can find an archive of our episodes on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and on the COR website at cor.ca. See you next time on the Corecast.